Good morning. I'm glad to be here with you today. We are going to talk a little bit for the next few weeks about the history of the Christian church. Now, a lot of your Bible, your Old Testament Bible and the book of Acts and things like that, a lot of your Bible is full of history. Stories about Samson and Delilah and stories about uh, all the guys in the New Testament, Saul and, and Peter and all the things that these guys went through. A whole lot of the Bible is about history. And to me, it's interesting to know, we believe that that matters and that that's functional and important because the Scriptures tell us that God was always involved in the things that were going on in Christianity. That God was involved in bringing about Israel as His special people. And the things that happened to Israel. And a lot of that history is important to us because we find it in the Bible. But after the New Testament was completed, we don't have biblical history, so to speak. But I believe it's true that just because we don't have biblical history recorded for us, there's no reason that we should become deists. Do you know what a deist is? A deist is someone who believes God's hands off about the world. That God just got it started and He's all hands off and He's sitting off on the moon just watching everything go on. I believe God has been involved in the history of the world uh, since creation and I don't believe that stopped after the New Testament was completed. Now, if we had time, I, after I told the elders what I wanted to do in this series, I got to thinking about what I, what I needed to do. And really, I'd like to have a first lesson that we don't have time for to just talk about basically how Christ set up the church. He set up there to be elders and deacons in the, in the congregations and a lot of things that you basically know about how the church functioned. But the truth is, when we talk about New Testament Christianity, how many of us have never heard someone say, well, we want to be like the New Testament church? Have you all heard that? Have you heard that? Yeah. I've said that. My question though, as I think about this, is which New Testament church would we want to be like? Would we want to be like maybe Antioch? You know, there was bigotry in Antioch. There were problems in the church at Antioch and it was bigotry. There was racial hatred and strife and conflict. You had an an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who refused to eat with people who are a different race. Can you imagine if that happened here? Would we like to be like that? No, we wouldn't want to be like that. That'd be a problem, wouldn't it? You know, that's not the only place there was a problem. There was moral corruption in Corinth. Do you remember reading the book of Corinthians? They had some guy who was shacked up with his stepmom. They had people getting drunk at communion. Now, we were in Mississippi the other day and Jesse went to one congregation. I went to a different one. She texted me after church and she said, they had real wine in communion. Whew! <laughs> it was a shock to her. You know what? They used real wine a lot of places. In Corinth, they were getting drunk. Can you imagine if word got out that the church at Gunner had people getting drunk at communion? You think anybody'd be going to the gunner meetings anymore? Not a chance. We wouldn't want anything to do with that if that's the way it was. 
They had doctrinal corruption in Galatia. Paul told the church at Galatia, he said, I'm amazed because you're not even following the gospel anymore. It's some perverted gospel that you're following now. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? What if word got out that down at Burleson, they'd changed the gospel and were teaching a perverted gospel? What would we think about that? You know, even at Jerusalem, with the Holy Spirit doing these miracles, and the apostles, all twelve apostles, running the church in Jerusalem, they still had trouble. Acts chapter 5, they had people who were in the name of God telling lies and pretending they gave money for religious blessings and benefit. We had people in the New Testament church of, of Jerusalem who were neglecting the widows who were of a different, the Hellenistic widows, who spoke a different language and were a little different culturally. Can you imagine that? If word got out that over at uh, Bridgeport, when they had church dinners, they excluded people that had moved down from up north and talked with a little different accent, a little different language. We'd think that was horrible. But these things were happening in the New Testament church. There was corruption even before this. Do you remember Jesus when He was on His way to the Last Supper and He was going to sit down and He was going to wash the feet of His disciples and they were all walking behind Him and they were arguing? And He said, what are you guys arguing about? Well, you know what they were arguing about? Who was the best? Who was the great? Can you imagine us heading off to some church function somewhere or maybe coming to church this morning and you get here and Matt and Yancey are out on the front porch arguing about which one of them's the greatest? Really? The New Testament church had problems. They had issues just like churches have throughout all of history. And when we study the history of the church, what we're studying is what happens when you do and when you don't obey God. Now, let me show you some of our breakdown. We're going to start here this week with persecuted Christianity from 70 A.D. to 312. Now, the reason of those dates, 70 A.D. is... Jerusalem fell, and up to this point, Judaism was the most well-known religion in that area, and Christianity was looked at as just a small sect of Jews. That's what they were considered. But once 70 AD happened, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, Judaism's over. It's been 2,000 years now, and they still don't have a temple. It's over. Christianity was a religion in its own right and recognized that way. We're going to go to 312 because in 312 a guy's converted to Christianity. And the church has been persecuted terribly, but this guy becomes emperor of Rome. And this guy issues what's called the Edict of Toleration or the Edict of Milan. And he says, you are not going to persecute Christians anymore. In fact, not only that... But I'm going to be a Christian and so are you. (laughs) And things greatly change. That's a very different age than this age of persecuted Christianity. But we're going to talk about some of the things that really stand out about this first 300 or 250 years or so of Christianity. Number one is there was intense persecution. Have you ever been persecuted for being a Christian? I just see a lot of blank stares. Just a little bit maybe. Some people are saying. These people were persecuted terribly. There were ten Roman emperors 
who tortured and murdered our brethren over this period of time. They tortured and murdered them. Nero was the first one who officially persecuted Christians. He burned Rome and then blamed it on Christians. He would take Christians and tie them up on poles and set them on fire to light his gardens at night. They did terrible, terrible things. There was very One of the most famous was the death of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. He had known of them. Polycarp was killed February the 22nd in 156 A.D. It's well recorded. We know right when he was burned. And they told him, they said, we will let you go, we will pardon you, and you won't have to suffer anything at all if you'll just deny Jesus. And Polycarp said this, for 80 and 6 years I've been his servant and he has done me no wrong. And how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? That's some courage, isn't it? They threatened him then with lions and wild animals and burning. And his answer to this was, You threaten me with fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, for you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. He says, You're going to burn me up? But it's going to be over like that because you don't know about real hellfire. That's that's courage. That's, That's commitment right there. Why do you think the Romans persecuted Christians? I mean, Romans tolerated almost anything, didn't they? In the Roman world, there was freedom of religion. You could worship any gods you wanted. Why would they persecute Christians? Now, we know why the Jews did. But why did the Romans persecute Christians? Well, I believe there are a few reasons I want to hit with you very quickly. Number one, Christians were distinctive. Christians weren't like everyone else. They were different. If you were a Christian stonemason, and you were a part of the local union, and they had unions back then in the Roman Empire, and you all got a job to build this temple of Zeus, a Christian wouldn't do it. Christian wouldn't be involved in that. Christians said, no, that's a temple to a false god and I'm not going to do it. They had nothing to do. They, they stood aloof from the crowds. Tertullian said this, we have a reputation of living aloof from the crowds. You know, if you were a Christian back in these days and you got sick, records, history shows us that most Christians refused to go to the Roman hospitals for treatment. They would rather stay at home and suffer and die than go to a Roman hospital which was dedicated to a false god and had pagan priests walking up and down between the aisles and blessing people in the names of their pagan gods. They said, we want nothing to do with that. You know, they believed differently than the world around them. And that's happening in America. Christian beliefs are really becoming distinguishable from most people. In the Roman world women were not considered very valuable. They were, they were resource consumers, not producers. They consumed and didn't produce, so most men didn't want a house full of women that they had to pro- provide for. So it was very common if a woman, a little girl baby was born, to just leave it on the side of the road. If it lived, it lived. If it died, it died. Just leave it and abandon it. 
There were men who walked the highways and would take those babies and these men ran brothels and they would raise these little girls as slaves and make them prostitutes in their brothels. Christianity said that's not right. Christians stood against that. Christians stood against that evil. They said children have dignity because they're created in the image of the living God. They treated slaves like they had dignity. Although they were still slaves, they treated them as equals with dignity because they were created in the image of the living God. And that didn't go well in the Roman Empire. They treated women differently because they were children, daughters of Eve, created in the image of God. So Christians were very distinctive. They stood out and were easy to identify. Another thing about them is that Christians, oddly enough, were accused of cannibalism. Did you know that? They were. Christians had to hide a lot of times down in the catacombs, places where when they were being persecuted, they had to hide. And they would talk about what they did in their worship ceremonies. And you know what they did? They had what we call the Lord's Supper. We've got it here on the table today. You know what the Lord's Supper is? The body and blood of Jesus. And people heard them talk about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their Savior. And people didn't understand that. People accused them of being being, uh, cannibals. Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And New Testament Christians believed that. These early Christians believed that. And they practiced that and they taught that. But people who were pagans didn't understand that. And so it was an easy accusation to make against Christians. Another thing, they were accused of all things of being atheists. You believe that? You know, in the Roman Empire, they had what was called the Pax Romana, and that means Roman peace, the peace that came from being a part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire did establish peace. They had armies all around, and anywhere there was trouble, they sent a strong army there, and they controlled it, and there was a lot of peace in the Roman Empire. But they worshipped the Roman Emperor. They worshipped their gods like Zeus and Thor and Mercury. Their gods, the Roman gods, were not God like we think of God. To them, they were superhumans like uh, the Avengers, like Thor. And uh, When I was a kid, we had a guy in the comic books called Flash. Do you all remember Flash? He'd run really fast. Well, that's Mercury. That's the Roman god Mercury, and that was their, their belief. And so they worshipped these men and women who had superhuman powers. It, what we would call superheroes. Well, it only makes sense then to worship the emperor because he's the most powerful man on earth. He says, live, you live. He says, die, you die. So those were the gods that they worshipped. The problem was Christians wouldn't worship Thor and Zeus and Poseidon and the Caesar. Christians wouldn't do that. And when there was a problem, you know what people believed back then? They believed problems were because God was mad at you about something. And so anytime there was a famine or there was a flood or there was something like that, they believed a God was mad at them. And guess who they blamed for that? Well, they blamed Christians. Tertullian said this, if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lion. Why? You see, they persecuted Christians because they believed this. 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that means no Thor and no Poseidon. That means no Caesar. The only way to God is Jesus Christ. See, Christians were persecuted not because they worshipped Jesus in the Roman Empire, but because they worshipped Jesus only. And I want to tell you this first 250 years of the church was a very, very difficult time to be alive if you were a Christian. Hundreds, thousands of people were slaughtered. There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you want a read that will keep you awake at night, that's something to read. It will tell you about people who had tremendous faith and were slaughtered for that faith. Another thing that stands out during this period of time is the spread of Christianity. Christianity, you would think, in a time when people were being persecuted, they had to go underground, they wouldn't talk to people about Christianity, they'd be afraid they'd be, be killed. You know the Christian fish, the, the, the symbol that I'm talking about? That's A time like this, I could use a marker board. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about though with the Christian fish? I do it like that when I draw it. That was designed during this period of time. And a Christian would have a stick in his hand and they would just make an ark in the dirt when they were standing around talking to somebody. And if that person was a Christian, they would take a stick and make an ark the other way, indicating that they were a part of the same thing. That's what that symbol was developed for. So there was tremendous persecution, but in the face of that, Christianity spread tremendously. It went from the east to the west, just like in the uh, every day the sun comes up in the east. The Apostle Paul was in Antioch, and he, when he was getting ready to go on his first missionary journey, he said, I'm going to go to Bithynia. And then he said, but I had a vision in the night, and God told me, don't go to Bithynia, but I want you to go to Macedonia. Well, Bithynia is east, Macedonia is west. Now, I don't know if there's any reason for that, but I do know this. Christianity began and traveled this way across the globe. It began in Jerusalem, there with the temple. That's where it started, that's where it began. And it spread from there when they were persecuted by Paul, who was Saul at the time. It spread from there up to a church called Antioch. Now, this is the Antioch Gate. That still exists today. That was a gate to this old city. I was shaking her head. She may have seen that. Yes, she's seen that. Okay, That's an amazing thing that that still exists. This was the site of the very first multicultural, multiracial church. The one in Jerusalem was all Jews. But this was multicultural, multiracial. And there was a guy named Barnabas sent up there to get this church rolling. And he went and got a fellow to help him. That guy he went to get to help him was Saul, the guy who had persecuted the church in Jerusalem, who becomes the Apostle Paul at this very first big new congregation that began to expand. This church decides to send Saul, or Paul as he's known now, out on his missionary journeys. And he leaves from there and he goes to Ephesus. This is the ruins of Ephesus. Ephesus was a huge city dedicated to Diana, the goddess Diana. It had a huge temple. Paul was so successful at Ephesus that people quit worshiping Diana almost completely. And they had a riot in the city because all the idol sellers couldn't sell their idols anymore. And it impacted the economy of the city of Ephesus. Paul was so successful. 
it moves from there and spreads from that point over toward the end of Paul's life toward Rome. And Rome was to them the outer part of the world. I mean, it was the edge of the world to them. We know that by the 4th century, that's around 300 years after Christ was born, 250 years after His crucifixion roughly, there were about 30,000 Christians in Rome, which is where the Roman uh, Caesar was, was there in Rome. The Christianity spread just like this. You can see the area in here. Christianity spread very quickly and very effective. Why do you think Christianity spread so much during that period of time? Why do you think that happened? Well, I've got a couple of reasons for you. Number one, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. New Testament Christians preached the Word. They told people about Jesus. They did all the time. Now, if you're a follower of Socrates, you may debate his ideas, but you're not going to go preach them. But the idea that God became a man and died to make men righteous in the eyes of God. And that there is a hell and fire coming, but there's a way out of that and that's through Jesus Christ. That was an amazing idea to people. And it touched and it convicted and it convinced people. And the New Testament Christians, everywhere they went, they told people about Jesus. That's one of the things persecution does does for you, I think. Another thing that happened is that Christianity actually, the gospel, genuinely transformed people's lives. This guy right here, Saul. Then Saul, still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. That's Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. He hates Christian. He is the number one enemy of Christianity. He hates them so bad, they've all left Jerusalem, so he goes following them, chasing them, trying to find them and kill them and put them in prison. He wants nothing. He wants to stamp out Christianity. He meets Jesus on the road, and you know what the end of Acts chapter 9 says? It says, Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. You know, one problem they didn't have, and you don't have during persecution, is a bunch of fake Christians. I mean, if it was going to cost your life to come here today, if they might catch you and burn you for coming here today, You'd have to be pretty committed to come, wouldn't you, Kent? It's different. There weren't lots of people who accepted Jesus and came to church and still stayed shacked up with the person they were living with and didn't attempt to follow and serve the Lord Jesus. He didn't have a lot of that. People's lives were transformed. They were changed. People were different. Julian the apostate hated Christianity and he said this, Christianity, or atheism as he called it, has been specifically advanced through the loving treatment rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. (laughs) He says, these sorry, no good Christians, they care about everybody. They love everyone. They take care of all the needy and the poor. They're faithful in that. Another thing that stood out about Christianity in that period of time, which was different, is that anyone could believe. 
You didn't just have to be a particular class or a particular status. You didn't even have to be literate. You just had to want to believe. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It didn't matter who you were. You could be a Christian. You could be a Christian if you were the Caesar, which we're going to find in 3.12. And you could be a Christian if you were a beggar. You could be a Christian if you were blind. You could be a Christian if you couldn't lead or live. Not live. See. You could be a Christian if you couldn't... Uh, if you were a slave. You could be a Christian if you were a master. You could be a Christian if you were a woman. Didn't matter who you were, you could be a Christian. That wasn't true of all the other religions around. Aurelius Celsus, I think I'm saying that right, said this, Far from us, say the Christians, be any man possessed of any culture or wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince, convince only worthless, contemptible people, idiots, slave, poor women, children, These are the only ones whom they managed to turn into believers. (laughs) He didn't have a real high opinion of Christians. He said, they'll just take anybody. I want you to know that's why Christianity spread. It spread tremendously through that. We recognize no man according to the flesh. All things are become new. He is a new creation. You see, it didn't matter to a Christian who you were. Status was irrelevant. The amount of money you had was totally irrelevant. But it spread. The last thing I want to mention about this is goes back a little bit to that story of Polycarp. Christians uniquely died well. You know what I mean by that? Stephen when they put him to death. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. You know, there's never been a people who died more easily and with dignity for their beliefs than Christianity. Christians have always died well. There was a a guy by the name of Irenaeus, and he was going to be put to death, and he said this, I am dying willingly for God's sake, if only you do not prevent it. He was talking to to other Christians. He said, only if you do not prevent it. I beg you, do not do me an untimely kindness. Allow me to be eaten by the beasts, which are my way of reaching God. I am God's wheat And I am to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts so that I may become the pure bread of Christ. Does that make any sense to you at all? That's the way Christians thought. Christians were not attached to this world. Christians were not attached to this life. They were willing to die like that for their Savior because they knew what was coming. And they knew that was real and that was better and that didn't have anything to do with my bank account or my status or my health or anything else. It had to do with serving the Lord Jesus. And they were willing to die for it. The Apostle Paul said this, For your sake we are killed all the day long. 
We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He said, they're slaughtering us just like animals. And we're more than conquerors. And that is the way Christianity spread. They died well and they told people about it. And the people who were converted changed. They were different. And they served the Lord. Another thing that marks this time very strongly is the development of the canon of Christian Scripture. What I mean by that's your Bible that you've got. That was developed, what we call the Bible, was put together and recognized during this period of time. Now, this book doesn't have any authority in and of itself because it's a book. It's not authoritative because we call it the Bible. In fact, the word the Bible just means the book. That's all it means. This has authority because it's the words of the people that Jesus gave authority to, the apostles. And Jesus told the apostles, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and He's going to tell you the words that God wants you to tell to everyone. And they did, and it was written down, and you and I have it as the, apostles, as the works of the apostles, and that's called the Bible. Now, people during this early period of time, what we call the Bible in half, those letters were widely circulated and they were widely recognized by all Christians at the period of time. But there were people after the apostles died that came along and began to teach different things. There was some of that going on while they were alive. But after they died, people began to teach heresies. And some people said, well, how do we know? How do we know what's right? There were groups like the Ebionites. The Ebionites said Jesus was just a man. He was a prophet, but He was not divine. You'll read their doctrine in the Da Vinci Code if you read that or or watch that movie. That's what it says. That's just the doctrine of the Ebionites that existed back in the early days of Christianity. There was another guy, or another group. Oh, here's a... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what Peter said, as opposed to Jesus just being a man. Um, Another group called the Gnostics. You can read about the Gnostics in the Bible. The Bible talks about the Gnostics. They believe Jesus was never a man. He was divine, but He did not come in the flesh. Because they believe the flesh was wicked and Jesus was all perfect. And since the flesh is wicked, Jesus couldn't have been flesh because He would have been wicked. So Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Jesus just appeared to be a man, but He wasn't really a man. You may say, well, you know, it's a technical difference. Why does that make any difference? Here's why it makes a difference. The Apostle John said, many deceivers have gone out into this world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. John said it mattered. Because you know, if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, He didn't die for your sin. And if He didn't die for your sin, you're wasting your time in Christianity. It mattered. But this doctrine was being taught. It was being taught all around. There were the group called the Marcionites. And the Marcionites said the Old Testament God was a different God than the New Testament God. Said really the Old Testament God was a fake. He was an evil God. And the New Testament God was the only good God. They said, he said, Marcion, he said the only apostle who knew what he was talking about was Paul. 
All the others were corrupt with Judaism, the Old Testament stuff they got. And you don't need to obey the law of God. The law doesn't matter. God's a God of love and mercy. And he went through and he got rid of a whole bunch of the New Testament. The only gospel he kept was Luke. And he went through the gospel of Luke because Luke traveled with Paul. And he took out all the references to anything in the Old Testament. In fact, it starts after all of the genealogies and all that stuff. It skips all of that. He took all that out of it because it was from the Old Testament. And he wrote his own new version of the Bible, basically. And he was circulating that around. There was an, The Scriptures say those things were written before or those things written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Paul read the Old Testament. Paul believed the things in the Old Testament. He talked about that a lot. This guy Marcion, even in his acceptance of Paul's writings, went through and took out all these references to the Old Testament. Because he didn't believe that. And he had a lot of followers. There was another group called the Montanists. And they followed a guy named Montanus, not Joe Montanus, the football player, but this guy that lived a long time ago, his doctrine was very different. He said the God of the Old Testament was true, Jesus was true, and he said, I'm the comforter that Jesus promised was going to come. I'm the paraclete. I'm the one. And so all that stuff they said, that's all good, but really I'm the one with the message. You need to forget all that stuff and just do what I said. And he taught... Latter-day revelation, that he was the one revealing the truth. And so he had lots of stuff he wrote. The Scriptures, though, tell us God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. So there were all these heresies and these doctrines floating around. The Christians found it necessary or valuable to agree on which writings were actually recognized by all of the Christians throughout the world. That gave rise to our our last point here about this, and that is the rise of the bishop. Now that was a huge departure from New Testament Christianity. In the Bible, when you read places like uh, Philippians chapter 1, He describes the organization of the church like this. He said every church is to have elders who are spiritual overseers, is to have deacons who were servants of the church, and then it has saints who were the Christians. And all churches were like that. There was no organization above the elders, deacons, and saints in each congregation. It didn't exist. There was no place. But what happened was when there was heresy... And there were false doctrines being taught. You might go to, uh, say, Bridgeport over here and go, well, they've got this false doctrine and no one's standing up against it. No one's teaching against it. And as happens in any group of people, you're going to have some people have real strong personalities and some people whose personalities aren't as strong. And those with strong personalities kind of dominate, don't they? Just by nature, that just happens. Well, you put that together with needing to have a strong stand against these heresies, And what happened is you had one guy that they began to call the bishop and he was elevated in respect above all the other elders. 
He began to be recognized as the one guy in this church that we can count on to be faithful and true. We know this guy is going to toe the line. This guy is going to hold us all faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a common belief that began to develop. So what you had is you had a bishop over elders. And the way that this spread is, let's say Denton's a decent sized town and we've got a, a, a smallish but a nice sized congregation here. Let's say we're meeting here. We've got this congregation. We've got Yancey and Matt are our elders and I'm working as an evangelist. Let's say we decided that uh, Matt is going to be the head elder. He's going to be the bishop. And we're going to put in another couple of guys with Yancey to help lead as elders. And somebody says, well, you know, there's no church up in uh, Crum. We've got some Christians that live in Crum. We need somebody to go up there. So Matt would send Yancey on Sundays. I want you to go up to Crum and I want you to hold a church service and I want you to do communion for these people. And then Matt would send somebody else down to Corinth and somebody else off somewhere else. And all these guys report back to Matt. Well, as those churches began to grow, and the church in Dallas at La Prada, they're a pretty good-sized church. They do the same thing, and they've got, let's say, uh, Clyde Woody's over them. And as that began to grow, you got to where you needed more people and more people and more people in this structured authority setting. Now, there was a guy on the scene who was very influential. This guy was an elder in the church in Antioch. And he was real concerned about heresy, about false teaching. And he said, you know, the only way we're going to stop that is we're going to need one man who we can trust in every church. And he wrote this. He wrote, follow the bishop as Jesus Christ, the presbytery, that was the elders, as the apostles, and respect the deacons. Let no man perform anything pertaining to the church without the bishop. He got to thinking, you know what? Jesus was over the apostles, and the apostles were over everyone else who was sent out. So maybe our churches should be structured that way. Maybe we should have one guy that's really the guy that we can all trust to be the one who tells the truth. And so that's what you had. You had one guy who was over all these other guys. And they would call these guys who were sent out, they would call them priests. And there were many bishops in many different congregations or many different areas. And each little congregation had its priest who was sent out by a bishop. And as time went on, the big churches and the big communities gained more and more influence and more and more power so that they had what they called metropolitans. Nowadays they call them cardinals, but they were metropolitans and they were in charge or had authority over these major geographical areas. And ultimately, one of these guys, the guy right there in the the Metropolitan of Rome, began to have more influence and more influence to the point that he was lifted up above all of the others, all of the other bishops, and they called him the father of the church or Papa or Pope as we say it in America today. Now see, the idea, you see how this structure developed? It began, now you can't read any of this in the Bible. None of this happened in the Bible. And let me show you why this is a problem. You might say, well, that's not that big a problem. But it is a huge problem. But it's perfectly understandable to me how this happened. Because they were under tremendous, tremendous persecution. 
And when you're persecuted, not everyone stays faithful to God, right? Some people quit. Some people turn away. Now let's just imagine that we were under tremendous persecution. All of a sudden, things are really, 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 really bad. And we have this life that we're living and we're hiding in the catacombs and and they catch a whole bunch of us and they round us up. And of the ones they catch, some of us stand faithful and give our lives for being Christians. And others of us go, "Eh, never mind. And they quit. Well, persecution would flare up and then it would die down and flare up and die down and flare up and die down. And when it died down, you know what happened to a lot of those people who denied Jesus while they were being persecuted? A lot of them would come back and they'd say, I want to be a part of the church again. Do you forgive them? Do you let them back in the church? You go, well, yeah, Jesus teaches us to forgive. Now, wait a minute. Let's try to be... Let's try to think about what that would be like. Let's say that Corey stands up for Christ. And Corey says, I'm going to die for Jesus. I will never deny Him, ever. And they kill Him. And they leave Aaron as a widow and priestly without a father. But Aaron stays in there. She continues to serve the Lord. And then things die down. And Jeremy, please forgive me, but I'm going to use you as the example. Let's say Jeremy denied Jesus. And he lived and he left. And then when things die down, Jeremy comes back and he goes, Hey, I want to come back to church. Let me ask you a question. What do you think Aaron is going to think about letting Jeremy back in? Her husband died and you quit and you gave it up. And Jesus said in Revelation, the fearful shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. And that Greek word fearful means those who quit when they're persecuted. We've got a decision to make. Do we accept Him back? Do we not? There was a real debate in the church. There was a guy by the name of Cyprian of Carthage who his answer to it was this. He said, yes, provided the bishop forgives them and they do some acts of penance to prove their repentance. Because somebody's got to decide whether they genuinely repented or not. Because if Jeremy really did repent, it's not right to keep him out. But he may just be a plant. He may just be a spy. They may have said, we'll let you live as long as you try to get back in and you find out where the rest of them are and turn them over to us. We don't know. So his suggestion was, as long as the bishop decides that his repentance is real and he's willing to do whatever acts of penance that the bishop lays on him, then we can let him back in. There were two very well-known bishops who took opposite sides on this debate. There was Cornelius who said, yes, that's right. That's what we need to do. There was Novation who said, no, we don't let him back in. Now let me ask you, do we let him back in? Who's on the side of Cornelius? Who would stand with Cornelius? Who would stand with Novation and go, I am never letting that guy back in. 
He left, He can't come back. How do you answer that? That's a tough call. Well, i tell you what happened. Cornelius won the debate. Cornelius won the debate. Everyone saw a compromise and they said, okay, the compromise is if the bishop says he's repented and he'll do the acts of penance, we'll let him back in. You know what that was? That was... Have you ever watched CSI where somebody gets shot and there's like a little bitty bullet hole in the front and they turn them over and there's a great big hole in their back? That's what this was. This was a bullet hole in Christianity. You might say, well, how does that work? i tell you what, how that works. What happened was they took the prerogative of God to forgive sin and they put it in the hands of a man. And once you give a man the authority to forgive sin or to hold sin on someone, then you've taken the hands of forgiveness out of God and you've put them in a man. And you end up with the corrupt system that the world has seen today. You know, this is a snowball rolling downhill. It starts very small, but as it rolls, it gets larger and larger and picks up steam. It's an avalanche. I understand why they made the choice. But you know, sometimes there are very terrible unintended consequences to the things that we do. This was a departure. It was wrong. It was wrong to take a bishop and place him over a church because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is no structure above the local congregation. That every congregation had elders who led that congregation. There were evangelists who established those churches and ordained those elders and they led their congregations and no other churches anywhere had any rule or lead over the government of local congregations. This was wrong. But it made sense to them. It seemed like such a small thing. It was for a good reason or a good purpose. But what we're going to find is that the hole that comes out on the other side, this avalanche, becomes so huge that by the time you get to 590, there's a guy by the name of Leo who claims that he is Christ sitting on a throne, Christ on this earth, Christ's representative. And it is so horrendous that it plunges the entire world into what we call the Dark Ages for a thousand years. As a result of this small decision. Now, what we're going to talk about next time is what we would think was the greatest thing that could ever happen. If, you, if, if Christians in America had been persecuted and burned and slaughtered and tortured for 250 years since the founding of the United States, and we finally get a president who says, I'm a Christian and we're not going to allow Christianity to be persecuted again. We're going to give them tax breaks and we're going to build churches for them and we're all going to be Christians. Wouldn't you think that was the greatest day in the history? Wouldn't you? I mean, we would be dancing in the streets, wouldn't we? It was one of the darkest days in the history of the world. And we're going to show you why next week when we get to that part of the study. I hope you've enjoyed this. And I hope that what I want you to see and get out of this is I want you to be inspired to follow this God. This God who 
does work in this world and does work in His people. I want you to be motivated. And if you're not, I want you to be warned that this God is real and He does work in this world and He does work in His people. And that you're a part of something that is so, so much greater. Now, there's a cartoon, a Peanuts cartoon that I've heard people mention that has, I don't even remember her name, but Lucy, maybe it was Lucy, and she's writing a theme about the history of her church. And Charlie Brown looks over her shoulder and she says, to understand the history of my church, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. Our preacher was born in 1930. (laughs) You know, when we study the history of the church, it's not just the history of this congregation. You're part of something as a Christian that is, is unimaginable. Jesus said it starts like a seed and it's a tree that grows to fill the whole earth. And I want you to have courage that you are part of the most amazing, tremendous kingdom in the history of the existence of the world that will ever be. If there's any way the church can assist you spiritually today, we certainly want to offer a song of invitation if you'll make that need known while we stand and sing.